0: I just want to remind Craig that I actually didn't receive a paycheck this month, so maybe we should just write another one just to be safe. Um, You know, you never know. There's confusion sometimes. Just kidding. But I do want to second everything that Craig said. We are extremely grateful for all the contributions uh, that people make for Prairie View, and we're extremely grateful for the ministry that we're able to do uh, because of the contributions that you all have made. So thank you for that. Um, If this is your first week with us, we just finished a six-week series going through the book of Psalms, and today we are starting a seven-week series in the book of James. And the book of James has become people's favorite book. There's tons of people I talk to, and whenever I say, what's your favorite book of the Bible, they always say, oh, it's James. Easy. It's James. It's just all over the place, and James Mayer is nodding his head like he has something to do with it or something. Um... (laughs) But people love the book of James. That's where we're going to be today Uh, and for the next seven weeks. It is a very challenging and convicting book, uh, but I believe it's going to be more than beneficial for all of us here. So being that we are starting a new series, will you pray with me as I pray for the next seven weeks as we move forward? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can spend time in your word. Um, I just think back to a couple weeks ago when Pioneer Bible Translators was here with, uh, Andy Ingram. And I think, you know, we take for granted so much that we get done studying one book of the Bible and we immediately move on to the next one and not think anything of it. But there are so many people who don't have that luxury. And so God, I pray that we will not take your word for granted, that you will speak to us through the book of James, that we will be challenged. We may have our toes stepped on, but I pray that all of us will benefit from it individually as we strive to follow you more closely in every area of life, And I think our church will benefit from it as well. So I pray that you'll just bless this study over the next seven weeks. Bless our congregation. Bless everyone here. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the most important things you can do before you start studying any book of the Bible is discover a little bit about the background of the book. It's extremely important that you know the context in which the book was written. Who wrote it? Where did they write it from? When did they write it? Who were they writing to? Because if you know those things, if you know the context of that scripture, it helps you to more easily and better find out what the implications are of that book for us in our context. Thousands of years later, living in a totally different place and totally different circumstances. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to discover a little bit about the background of the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now before we go any farther, the question has to be raised, well, who is James? Who is the guy who wrote this? Well, we know it's a guy named James, but here's the problem. There's all kinds of Jameses in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of Jesus. There's James, the brother of John. There's a couple other Jameses in the New Testament that aren't quite so significant. So which James was it? Most scholars believe that it was, in fact, Jesus' younger brother, James, who wrote this book. Where he wrote it from was probably Jerusalem. James was a well-known leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's probably writing from Jerusalem around 45 to 48 AD. Now, for those who say that this really isn't Jesus' brother, the argument would be, now wait a minute, if this is Jesus' brother writing, why does he never say anything about being Jesus' brother? I don't know about you, but if I were writing a book of the New Testament and I wanted people to take it seriously, I would be dropping that name all over the place. If I went to restaurants that didn't have a table available, I would be dropping Jesus's name. Do you know who my brother is? Because my brother will judge you in eternity, but if you don't want to give me a table, that's your choice. So, so this is Jesus's brother and James's main focus. The reason that he doesn't drop Jesus's name is that the relationship that matters to him when it comes to Jesus is not a sibling relationship. Rather, it's a servant relationship. When he introduces himself, he doesn't say, James, the brother of Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just gives you a peek into James's humility right in the very first verse. You already learn a little something about James. So he's in Jerusalem, 45 to 48 A.D., most people estimate. The significance of that date would have been that, like we talked about with the Gospel of Mark, the earlier a book of Scripture is being written, the closer to an event that is being written, the more bound the author is to be honest, to not exaggerate things, to not fabricate things. And so if James was writing this book and giving these teachings that didn't sound like anything Jesus would have ever said— then there would have been people still alive that would have said, now wait a minute, James, I remember Jesus. This was only about 15 years ago, and this doesn't sound like anything he would have ever taught. What is going on here? So James is forced to be an accurate presentation of what it is that Christ means and the teachings that he gives, the relevance of Christ in his teachings. And then on top of that, with the date, what that shows us is that the book of James is one of the, if not the earliest New Testament book written. Paul was writing very early after Jesus' death and resurrection, but James is right there with him. This is a very, very, very early document, one of the closest to the time when Jesus actually walked the earth. So that's pretty significant. And then finally, who's he writing to? That's important to know. Who's his audience? If you look in verse 1, there's two terms that seem to indicate that he's writing to Jewish Christians. And those two terms are the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Those are two very Jewish terms. The 12 tribes of Israel, a big part of Israel's history, the Jewish people's history. Now, they don't exist anymore, but it's kind of a symbolic acknowledgement from James, the 12 tribes. And then the dispersion would be referring to Jewish people who live outside of Palestine, who live outside of Jerusalem. And the thought is that these people that James is writing to might live what is in modern-day Syria. So they're living a little bit farther away than most of the people we encounter in other books of the Bible. So that gives you a little bit of background with where we're going with this. So I'm going to start reading in verse 2. Uh, Once again, we'll have scripture up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way. We have Bibles scattered throughout the room, but I'm going to read in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations might say, count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. I actually like the word pure a little bit better. I think it does a little bit better job of communicating James's idea here. But he says that when you encounter hardship, when you encounter trial, when you encounter trouble, here's what you do. Be joyful about it. Easier said than done, right? Well, thanks, James. Thanks for the advice. But here's the thing. James gives a reason why we could do this completely unnatural thing of being joyful in the face of trial. And the reason he gives is because trials can lead to steadfastness. What kind of trials would James be talking about? If we're talking about Jewish Christians in Syria around 45 to 48 A.D., there's probably three big trials they're facing. Number one, there's some evidence to suggest that the people in the letter of James might have been dealing with famine. There was a famine going through the area at that time. So these people were probably hungry. Then on top of that, James tells us that there are rich non-believers who are holding it against the Christians, who are using their wealth against them, taking advantage of them, filing lawsuits against them that they can't possibly pay. So they're dealing with poverty. And then the third thing they're probably dealing with is persecution. Good old-fashioned, we don't like what you believe, we don't like what you're teaching, so guess what? we're going to hurt you for it. And if you don't stop teaching it, then you're going to pay. So those might be the trials that they're facing, and we probably don't face those trials, most likely. Those of us in our in this room, we probably don't deal with famine. We probably don't deal with poverty. We probably don't deal with true persecution. But we have trials. We have all kinds of trials. Just because they're different doesn't mean they're not trials. Could be a job loss, could be health problems, It could be a broken relationship with someone that we care about. It could be a rebellious child. There's all kinds of things that we deal with all the time. All kinds of trials and hardships that take a toll on us. And just because we're not facing these same trials as this audience doesn't mean that we can't learn something from this. And what James argues is that our trials can help us grow. If you look back at your life Think about the times that you matured the most, the times that you grew up the most, the times that you developed the most. They were probably times of hardship. They were probably times when things weren't going your way. They were probably times where everything wasn't easy. But you had a choice. You could either get beaten down by those hardships and give up, or you could hold your head up high and push through them and learn from them. And come out stronger on the other side. And these Christians are facing that choice in the book of James. If you look on the screen behind me, there is a poster that has kind of become a pop culture icon here recently. If you're on Pinterest, you've probably seen this. Keep calm and carry on. This was a poster that was created in 1939 by the British Ministry of Information. And the idea behind this poster was that the British Ministry of Information knew that World War II was quickly approaching. And they wanted to give something to their public to be a source of morale, to be a morale booster, to encourage them to stay tough even though things are about to get hard, to stay strong even though hardship is coming. And so they developed this poster Keep Calm and Carry On. And the people would look at this poster and see the crown, and they would say, You know what? Things are hard. This is definitely a difficult time, but we are going to push through. We're going to keep calm and carry on for the glory of our crown, for the glory of the royal family. But the posters never really made it out into the public. We don't really know why. But then all of a sudden, in 2012, someone went to Antique Roadshow, and they had some of these posters, and it just exploded, this keep calm and carry on. And so now you have all kinds of different variations of this poster, But I'm I'm afraid that we've lost some of the significance of this poster, because this really is a pretty meaningful thing, and yet we've kind of trivialized it in pop culture. This is a symbol of people being encouraged to stay steadfast. And this is what James is doing in this book. This is his keep calm and carry on poster, that he's writing to these Jewish Christians, encouraging them to push through the hardship, because there can be benefit from it. Look at verse four, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when many Christians read this passage, we immediately jump to the conclusion of saying, now, wait a minute, James is saying that if somehow we withstand hardship, if somehow we remain steadfast, we can be perfect. Is that really what James is saying? The answer, unfortunately, is no. But if you're already perfect, you have nothing to worry about The answer is no We cannot be perfect No matter how hard we try No matter how hard we work We can never become the perfect sinless people That God expects us to be So what do we do? Well, it comes back to grace We trust in God's grace Do we still strive to look more like Christ? Absolutely Do we still strive to reflect God's character in our relationships and in our decisions? Of course we do. But we do it knowing that we will never attain perfection in this life. And so we look forward to the life that is to come. Now, some people might read this if you're a pessimist like I can be at times. And you might read this and say, now, wait a minute. If I'm being told right now that I'm never going to be perfect, then why even bother? I'm kind of one of those people where, you know, if I decide that I want to get in shape, which I've been trying to do, I'm one of those people who will justify no longer exercising because I say, you know what? No matter how hard I try, I will never beat Usain Bolt. So why even bother? That's completely ridiculous logic on my part. But that is the logic that we sometimes take when we hear that we will never be perfect in this life. We are called to strive to be more like Christ. We are called to trust in grace when we realize that we will never attain that on our own. But nonetheless, we strive to be like him. We strive to reflect him. And that steadfastness that we develop during hard times can certainly play a role in helping us to become more like Christ. Fast forward a little bit to verse 12 of James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. If you turn forward a few pages in your New Testament to First Peter chapter 1, verses six and seven, Peter says something very similar. He says, "In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ back to that point about perfection What peter makes clear is that perfection happens upon the revelation of jesus christ So while we will never be perfect in this life We look forward to the day that we will be in christ's presence Because then we can be made perfect whether that comes through our death or whether that comes through Christ's return, we look forward to being in his presence, to fully reflect the character that he reflects. But in the meantime, we stay steadfast, we keep calm, and we carry on during trials. And I like what James says in verse 12 about receiving the crown of life. Back to that poster that we saw in Britain. You saw the crown on it. And that was called to be the motivation for the British people to stay tough during this difficult time of war. Well, how much greater is the crown that we look for? We look for a crown that will not tarnish. We look for a crown that won't become outdated. We look for a crown that won't break. We look for a crown in eternity. And if the British people can look at their crown and remain steadfast, how much more should we look at the crown that we await and remain steadfast in trial? Because there's something coming in eternity, and it's well worth the steadfastness. Okay, stay steadfast. That's what James seems to be saying. Verses 2 through 4, throw in verse 12. Peter says something similar. Sounds easy, right? stay steadfast, be strong, well, it's easier said than done. When you're facing trials, you know that it's easier said than done to keep your chin up. And if you go to someone and share the trial that you're dealing with and their only advice is, well, push through, you're probably going to be a little bit perturbed because you say, now, wait a minute, it's easy for you to say that, but you have no idea what I'm going through. Well, James knows this. Here's the catch. The only way we can possibly stay steadfast in trials, the only way we can possibly have the strength we need to have to maintain our faith during difficult times is through the wisdom that God can give, and only God can give. In Psalms, we talked about how the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Do you have that wisdom? Do you have God's spirit dwelling inside of you, empowering you and equipping you to face the trials that those of faith often face? Maybe the trial has nothing to do with your faith. But nonetheless, we need God's help if we're going to stay steadfast. If we try to do this on our own, we're going to fall flat on our faces. We're going to give in. And as we read that passage, there's another catch. Just ask God for your wisdom. Okay, I'll ask God for wisdom, but the second catch is do it without doubting. Hmm, That's quite the challenge. And James is not so much talking about the idea of someone praying for wisdom and saying, well, I'm going to pray for wisdom, but I don't really know for sure that God's going to give it to me, but I'm going to ask anyway because maybe he will and I'll take my chances. That's certainly an aspect of doubt, but that's not really the doubt that James is getting at primarily. The doubt that James is getting at is seen in that last phrase in verse 8. He is a double-minded man. That's the doubt. Are you serving two masters? Do you have divided interests? Are you asking God for wisdom and yet there's something else that you want too? Do you have an idol, like we talked about the past few weeks, that maybe you're also worshiping? And you're thinking, you know what? I want this wisdom from God. I want to stay steadfast, but I have my own interests too. And I don't want to lose those. That's the doubt that James is referring to. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says the following. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God And money, Jesus makes it clear that if you have two masters in your life If you have two things that you're living for guess what one of them is going to be neglected Whether you like it or not That's just how it is And eventually one of them is going to be completely ignored In this case, jesus is using the idea of god and money That if you worship both You really don't worship either one and you will end up worshiping one more than the other. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. Jesus, speaking to the church in Laodicea, says, "'I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing.'" We see two different passages where Jesus talks about the idea of serving two masters, having divided interests, being lukewarm, having one foot in one door and one foot out the door. And James is speaking against this double mindedness. Now, both those passages that we've read from Jesus had to do with money. And you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute, James hasn't said anything about money. Why do these passages come together? Well, Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is speaking to one of the trials in particular. That these people are facing you've got poor christians being abused by wealthy non-believers And the christians don't know what to do about it And james is saying stay steadfast because guess what? You might be humiliated now But your exaltation is coming Because you have the riches that really matter and that's a revelation. That's a relationship with christ And then he's saying to the rich that guys enjoy what you have right now Because guess what? This is the high point If you don't have a relationship with christ, this is all there is So enjoy your exaltation while you can because humiliation is coming And you will fade like grass Your flower will fall the beauty will perish your riches will die So I hope it's worth it Is what james is saying? Now, naturally, when we read this passage and James is going to have more to say about wealth later in the book, we immediately kind of grab our wallets a little bit tighter and we say, now, wait a minute, I don't like this whole money stuff. Why would we be talking about this stuff in church? Well, because scripture talks about it. It's that simple. So what what the real question is when we encounter this passage is what does it mean for us? What does it mean for wealthy Christians, like any of us sitting in this room? Because if on a global scale, if you're sitting in this room, you're rich. So before we sit back and say, oh, yeah, I can't wait till those rich people get what they deserve, be careful about that because the rich person is in the mirror. So what does this mean for us? Does this mean that the figure in our bank account automatically excludes us from salvation? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In that Revelation chapter 3 passage, we saw that the concern is not so much the wealth, but look at the attitude of the Laodiceans. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's the problem. That's what Jesus warns us against when he says you cannot serve two masters. The attitude that, you know what, I've earned this. I'm a self-made man. I worked hard for this. And you know what? I don't need anyone's help. I don't need anyone's forgiveness. I don't need anyone's grace because I'm successful. That's the problem that we run into with money as followers of Christ. That's the temptation that we face to make sure that we are not letting our money become another master. Because we only have one master worth serving. We only have one master that can give us a crown that lasts into eternity. And if the crown that we ultimately seek is the crown here on earth, that crown will fade away. It'll tarnish. But the crown that matters is the one that goes past this life. So James is telling his audience, stay steadfast when you're being abused. But he's also giving a warning to those of us who are wealthy. To make sure we don't let our wealth become a god Make sure we don't allow ourselves to think that we no longer need god Because we're taken care of We're in good shape We have everything we could possibly need That's the concern that james is speaking about Pick up in verse 13 of james chapter 1 Let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god For god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it gives, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Many people read the book of James, and it seems like James just randomly goes from topic to topic sometimes. But really, there's, there's a structure here. James is doing something. He talked about wisdom, how we need wisdom to stay steadfast. We need God's help if we're going to stand strong in our faith. So then, what if we don't remain steadfast? What if our trials get the best of us? What if we give in to some sort of temptation? The temptation that his audience is facing is to say, Well, you know what? God can't blame me for giving in because he's the one that's tempting me in the first place. God put me in this situation, so if I mess up, if I fail, how can I be blamed for that? It's not my fault. I have no control over any of this. It's a poor excuse, according to James. He says that God himself tempts no one. And look at what he says at the end of verse 13. Rather, the beginning of verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When we give in to temptation, when we do not stay steadfast, we don't blame God. It's on us. If we give in to sin, if we let sin conceive in our lives, if we entertain temptation, it's not God's fault. The popular saying back in the 70s was, the devil made me do it. That's also a poor excuse. When we give in to temptation... When we do not stay steadfast in trials, it's not God's fault. We can only look at ourselves because we didn't flee from the temptation the way Joseph did in Potiphar's house. When Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with Joseph, Joseph knew this would be a sin against God. And so what did he do? He physically ran away. That's the idea that James is getting at. Flee from temptation. And when trials come trust in god because even if you do fall even if you do slip up because you will trust in grace trust in forgiveness trust in mercy because there's more going on than you realize look at verse 16 closing out the passage do not be deceived my beloved brothers every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James closes this little section of chapter 1 by saying, You know what, people? Staying steadfast? It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But every good and perfect gift comes from above. In other words, it's worth it. The gifts that come with your steadfastness, they're well worth the struggle. They're well worth the energy. They're well worth the falling and getting back up. They're well worth the repentance. Because the crown that you seek is better than any crown that this world can offer. So stay steadfast because your trials could lead to something good. Speaking again about Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery. By his jealous brothers in the book of Genesis. His brothers were jealous that Joseph seemed to be favorited by his dad. So they sell him into slavery. Joseph goes through ups and downs. He ends up in Potiphar's house. We already heard a little bit about that. He had to flee from the temptation to sleep with Potiphar's wife. But eventually he ends up in Egypt. And Joseph becomes kind of an advisor to the Egyptian leadership. And Joseph has a dream and sees that a famine is coming. So Joseph goes to the leadership and he says, guys, there's going to be a famine and we need to prepare for it. We need to be ready for this. And they say, well, if you say so, do what you got to do. So Joseph starts storing up food, making sure they have plenty of rations. Should this famine come? The famine does come. And Egypt is the only nation that was prepared. So all these other nations start flocking to Egypt to get assistance, to get food from them because they weren't prepared for this. Guess who shows up? Joseph's brothers. The brothers who sold him into slavery years earlier, who left him for dead, effectively. And Joseph has two options. After all the trials that he's been through, after all the hardships they put him through, he can either, A, have payback... Get revenge that he's probably been secretly looking for this entire time, or he can show them grace. He chooses option B. He shows them grace. He shows them mercy. He forgives them for what they did for him so much earlier in his life. And when Joseph's father dies, Jacob, the brothers and Joseph are standing there talking, and the brothers still can't get over the fact That Joseph showed them that kind of grace. That he showed them that kind of mercy. And Joseph tells his brothers, he makes this famous statement, he says, Guys, what you meant for evil, God used for good. The trials that you're facing are hard. But God can use them for something good. God can use them to help grow you, strengthen you, mature you, develop you, all of these things. Your trials don't have to end in defeat if you're trusting God through them. So now the question is, are you facing your trials on your own? Whatever trial it is that you're going through right now, are you facing it alone? Because if you are, you won't last. But you don't have to be alone. You can trust God in the midst of your trials, and he can take your trials and make something glorious out of them. Do you trust him to do that? I pray you do. Because if you do, you can keep calm and carry on knowing that God's spirit is living inside of you. That even when you fail, God's grace is there. Keep calm and carry on. Stay steadfast. And don't go through your trials alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. God, we are never promised when we become followers of your son that things will be easy. We're never promised that things will go smoothly all the time. We're never promised that all of our problems will be solved. But God, we are promised that you're there. And that when things go wrong, when problems arise, when life is difficult, we're no longer alone. God, I pray that we will learn to trust in you. I pray that we will remain steadfast for your glory because the glory that we look for is so much greater than anything this world can offer. We look for crowns that last into eternity. And it is only through your grace that this is possible. It is only through your son's broken body and shed blood for all of us that this is possible. God, I pray that we will let the cross of Jesus shape everything we do, everywhere we go, what we say, all of these things. I pray that we will learn to trust in you like we've never trusted in you before. I pray that we will rely not on our riches, but rather on you alone. Help us to be single-minded, focusing on you at all times. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins that he offers. We ask these things in his name. Amen. If you are going through your trials on your own, then talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room at the end of the service. They'd be happy to talk to you about Christ and accepting your confession of faith. If you have questions about our church, if you have prayer requests, any of those things, feel free to stop and talk to one of them.